let's, let's pray together. Father God, we bow before you tonight, quieting our hearts and humbling ourselves before you. We pray that you would speak to us clearly how we need to hear from you above the din and the clutter of this world. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for this holy place that is consecrated to you. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would meet us here and send us forth. Thank you for the truth of your word. Give us hearts to receive and lives to put into effect what you speak to us. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. I um, want to read the first seven verses of Hebrews 8. My text is 8 through 13. What is expressed in the first seven verses The writer of Hebrews illustrates from Scripture in 8 through 13. And so it's important to see the context. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence it is necessary that this high high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. But as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. I want to stop there and just share... Three things. There are three things about the Old Covenant that is very, very important to realize. And these things were true from the very beginning when God ordained them and passed them through Moses to the people of Israel. The first thing is that the Old Covenant, by definition, was temporary in function. It was designed to be temporary. And he alludes here... In, in verse 2, a minister of a sanctuary in the tr- uh, and in the true tabernacle. In other words, the old tabernacle was not the true tabernacle. It was a depiction of the true tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 6, the tabernacle is, first of all, the word tabernacle is tent. And it was a temporary structure. The tent was built Portable. There were poles and sockets and, cur- and curtains. The furnishings in the tabernacle were made to have poles of acacia wood by which they would carry the tabernacle. It was a portable temporary structure. The Levites were assigned for the transport. And it's interesting that it was man's idea to build a temple. God ordained curtains to be 
certain size and the poles and the sockets and everything according to a very, very particular um, design and plan which God um, expressed. And so the temporary, the, the temple was temporary. There was nothing said of cut stones or cedar or a permanent structure. It is sobering to look at scripture and realize that the two temples that were built, both were destroyed by God. And they were to be, to function for a period of time until what I'm going to get to in a couple minutes, a future realization. One time when I was in college, one of my roommates and I wanted to get away from school and studies as far as we could get, so we got in the car and went out to Columbus, Ohio airport. And hanging out in the airport, we met a couple soldiers who had gotten a 24-hour leave and they needed to get to Cambridge, Ohio. It's midnight by now. And so we offered to load them up and I had an old 1950, it wasn't old then, a 1959 Volvo PV 544, a very small car. Four of us got in that car with our duffel bags in the trunk and headed out to Cambridge, Ohio, about 50 miles away. Dropped them off at their home and we headed back to Columbus. On the way back, going through a small town on Highway 40, something broke in the car and I had no throttle. It would just sit there and idle. And so I saw a gas station. It's now 2 o'clock in the morning. Called up the proprietor. His phone number's on there and said, my car broke down. He says, well, I'll see you at 7 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> and so I parked under a light, opened the hood, and a little Z-clip on the carburetor broke. And you can't get those anywhere except the next day in Columbus. And so I got my little Volvo toolkit out of the trunk with its crescent wrench pliers and screwdriver, disconnected the carburetors, took one of, took, disconnected the chokes from the carburetors, put the crescent wrench over the broken Z-clip, took one of the choke cables, hooked it to the end of the crescent wrench, got in the car. When I pulled out the choke, it would open up the engine. And so I'm driving home. Look, Ma, no hands, you know, shift gears. And... It worked great. We got home. The next day, first chance I got, I booked down to the Volvo dealer and bought a Z-clip. It was a temporary provision for a situation. And it worked great. And that was the tabernacle. A temporary, it had a temporary function. It was a temporary provision. Secondly, the tabernacle was a replica of a real thing. And it was a depiction on earth of the throne room of God. And it was designed by God to manifest his holiness in the midst of his people. And here in verse 4 and 5, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews points out, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer gifts according to the law. And he says, who serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. A copy and a shadow. I looked these words up. And a copy means a representation, a figure, or a mock-up. And Kevin showed you this on Sunday. Rich Greer put it together. And this is a mock-up of where you're sitting. 
Now, how many of you would prefer this to this building? I don't think anyone. This is easier to pay for, but it is not nearly as functional. And so that is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the tabernacle and the law. It was a mere mock-up of the real thing, a temporary provision to, to draw men to look ahead to the realization, which is my third point. I don't want to get too far ahead. Secondly, he says it's a shadow, which is a sketch or an outline, and Pastor Kevin had the big ball of plans here on Sunday. That's what he's talking about there. It's the blueprint. It's not the real thing. It's a depiction of that reality. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 5 and he says, It is a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. And God says to Moses, See, God says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. That word pattern is tupos or type. Or that that figure which God gave to Moses, which is a representation of a real thing, which is the presence of God in heaven. And looking to the, the law and the tabernacle were a replica of a reality that would be entered into ultimately in the future, which we have the privilege every time we pray of entering into that. The third thing that we see in the Old Covenant that the writer expresses here is that the Old Covenant by nature anticipates a future realization. And therefore, the Old Covenant requires termination of that temporary provision. It's just like me the next day in that old Volvo. I didn't, you know, show off everybody and try to get the car manufacturers to hook the choke up to the throttle so everybody could drive that way. It's a temporary provision that has a termination point as soon as possible. And so it requires termination of that temporary provision. And the author here points out in 6 and, six and 7, he says, Now he obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is a mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. If the first covenant had been false, faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And so he expresses here that there is an anticipated or a the tabernacle and the law held before the people of Israel a future hope into which you and I have entered. And so he points out here that there, um, there is that if the covenant had been faultless, and as we read into the next verse, he uses the same word, for finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so he uses this term fault. And it's interesting, it is used only one other place besides Hebrews in the Bible in Romans 9.19 where Paul says, You say to me then, why does he still find fault with Israel? Because they would be apart from the new covenant for a period of time. 
It says, for, he who for who resists his will. And so it's strategic and important that we ask the question, what is the fault that God found with those who had received the old covenant? What is the fault? What is it that God found fault with? He says, finding fault with them. First of all, it is not the fact that they were imperfect. God is not a critic of us trying to find fault. In fact, the old covenant implies that we are all sinners and we need atonement and we need a means whereby we can enter into God's holiness. And so the problem is not that God is finding fault with is not human imperfection. The law existed to it, it the law existed to prevent and to cover sin assuming that we are all sinners. Secondly, the fault that God found with them is not with the law as though it were too easy or too harsh or too absolute or something that is continually interpreted wrong. The problem was not with the law. In fact, the Apostle Paul says the law is good. And so the problem is not that humans are imperfect or that the law, the problem is with the law. The problem was with their response to the old covenant. God had a purpose in the old covenant that the people of Israel completely missed and violated. The problem was with man's abuse and misuse of the old covenant. God, what is God's intention in the law? What was he trying to do? What, his, what was his purpose in the old covenant? I jotted down three things. There are many more. First of all, to protect Israel from the demise of the nations. The nations were under judgment and they ultimately would come to Canaan and Canaan would be put under the ban by God because they had reached the point of no return. And so the law is a gift to protect. The law is a gift to protect man from the sin diseases of the world or the nation. Secondly, the law functions to cover and deliver <clears throat> A man to a better destination. We can see this in the Passover. What was God's purpose in the Passover is to deliver the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt and to cover their sins so that they could be a people holy and set apart to God and to lead them forth to a place where God would bring them. And so there was that, that destiny in the law implied it was never to be a static realization, but it was always moving people in a direction. Thirdly, the purpose and the intention of the law is ultimately to bring them to Calvary. The purpose of the law is to continually remind us and to remind people of the condition of sin. It's interesting, as you open the pages of the New Testament, the first figure in the New Testament before we get onto the ministry of Jesus Christ 
is the ministry of this man, John the Baptist. And John came preaching what? Repentance from sin. And it's interesting that the humble people who who were seeking God were drawn to John the Baptist and were baptized by him, but who would not receive the baptism were the, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who had misused the law to kind of portray themselves as fulfillers of the law, not needing to repent from sin, seeing themselves as the righteous ones. And so consequently, they had nothing to do with John the Baptist except to be his critic or to be a spectator just kind of marveling at him and wondering what's going on. In Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ, we see these two beautiful individuals, Simeon and Anna, in Luke chapter 2. And the law worked perfectly for them. You see, they used the law, as Paul says, lawfully. And they were living to to see the promised Messiah. Where did they get that idea? Through the law. And they were anticipating a savior. A savior. It's interesting that those who were looking for the coming Messiah who used the law unlawfully in order to create some token righteousness on their behalf by going through motions. We're looking for a Messiah who would come and exalt them and destroy everybody else but them. A sense of self-righteousness. If you will, turn to Isaiah chapter 1 and I just want to look quickly with you at what Isaiah says uh, here in this, the first chapter. Uh, Isaiah 1.10. Isaiah preaches to Israel, to those who had misused the law. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, I want to remind you, he's not talking to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. They're toast. He's talking to the people of Israel using a figure of speech for those who had used the law to devise some form of token righteousness. He refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offering no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon feasts and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of of bearing them. You know, you're in trouble if God says that about your prayers. And that's what he's saying to the people of Israel who have abused the law. Verse 15, he says, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. 
Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the worth, worthless. Defend the orphan. Plead the widow. In other words, begin to practice the law the way that God intended the law to be practiced. To be a manifestation of grace and salvation to mankind. To dictate the way that they were to live their lives. And then 18 to 20, there in Isaiah 1. Familiar passage. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. And I want to just time out here. One of my mentors pointed out in the past that this can be translated a very different way. In fact, it is probably preferred. It should probably read in context from what God is saying. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, shall they be as white as snow? And, he, and going on, though they are red like crimson, shall they be like wool? If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's what God said about those who misused and abused the law as a means of giving themselves some kind of token faith or ritual righteousness. The message of the law is simple. And the law is good. The message of the law expresses that man has a congenital problem. All men. Women too. A congenital problem of sin. The message of the law is that God is holy. If you've ever used the little four spiritual laws, in the first law, it talks about how God has a wonderful plan for your life. And the second law is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there's this great problem. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God loves us. And that sin has to be dealt with. And without the realization of sin, there is no salvation. As I like to say, the only prerequisite for being a Christian is that you absolutely have to be a sinner. And so Christianity, like the message of John the Baptist, is not of any interest at all to the self-righteous. Because they don't need it. I don't have any sin. What do I need this Jesus stuff for? That's for people who need crutches. So, the law expresses that God is holy. Thirdly, the message of the law is that God makes provision for man's condition, atonement. It's very interesting as you read through the law in the Old Testament, the day of atonement and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and the connecting of that to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the Lord's Supper. It is a direct connection which is unmistakable. And there has to be atonement. 
And one of the things that the Jewish people today do not have is any manifestation of atonement in their practice of faith at all. But the law provides for man's condition through atonement, the Passover lamb. And then fourthly, the message of the law is that in in God's provision, there is hope. There is hope. And that's why Simeon and Anna were looking for. Simeon was told that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's anointed. And here this man is living every day in hope. And he's elderly. He wakes up every morning saying, God, you better get with it here. God, you better get with it here. God, you better get with it here. The old ticker's slowing down. And he held the Christ child. He saw the fulfillment of God's hope. Where did he get that hope? From the law. Looking ahead to the promise of ultimate atonement. And so I just want to briefly share with you the hope of Israel in the law. The hope of Israel was full realization of their salvation. That's what the law required and that's what the law pointed to is a future fulfillment and a future expectation that there would be forgiveness. And that's the thing that's so peculiar about the Old Testament law is every year they go through the same sacrifices and the same thing, but there is no finalization, but it looked forward to a finalization of forgiveness and salvation once and for all. Secondly, their hope looked to a personal relationship with God, and this is borne out here in these verses as the writer of Hebrews, um, I better get to Hebrews 8, before I start reading in Isaiah again. But here is he quotes Jeremiah, chapter 31. And our first prayer meeting in the new building, Gerald shared from this passage. And what a marvelous passage of scripture. Beginning in verse 8. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Looking ahead to that hope. Verse 9, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So there is final atonement and salvation and there is a personal relationship with God that the law anticipated. A personal relationship with God which you and I many times even take for granted. And I find myself so many times faced with things and I jump into them and try to solve them without going before God and calling upon him for his grace and his mercy and his direction. This one song we sang tonight. 
for the direction of the Lord. And so there is that anticipation of a personal relationship with God. Not going to a priest, not going to some man and saying, what do you think I should do? But going directly into the presence of God and walking with him. That was anticipated in the law. And then the third great hope of Israel was fellowship. Instead of standing outside and looking into the priest's court and seeing them making sacrifices and hearing of the priest entering into the Holy of Holies, there's this fellowship where every one of us can be priest to God and enter into the Holy of Holies and, and have full relationship with God and function as a part of the kingdom of God. Not being spectators. I jotted down out of the bleachers and onto the field. That they anticipated a time when people would be a part of the kingdom of God and functioning as co-workers in the kingdom of God. The hope of Israel. The hope of the law. Well, I don't want to end there. I want to go on to the hope of the church, of you and me. Because the new covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant both have their hopes that we look forward to. And we have a great hope and a great promise from God in the new covenant that we look forward to that has not been fully fulfilled even yet. First of all, deliverance from the flesh. Looking forward to full salvation and deliverance. First of all, deliverance from the flesh. Is there anyone here who does not struggle with the flesh? I'm putting my hand down now. We face it every day. Where did that thought come from? Where did that impulse come from? Where did that desire come from? We struggle with the flesh. I look forward to the day when the flesh is gone, when we're like Jesus and we're completely set free. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we, we have the hope of being delivered from the curse that is upon the whole world. Romans 8, all creation groans and travail, awaiting the adoption of the sons of God. To see God's creation restored to what God created it to be when the lion lays down with the lamb, when we're delivered from this horrible curse that has been poured upon this earth. What a day that will be. No more disease. No more death. No more sorrow. No more results of that curse from the very beginning. Thirdly, deliverance from the world. Now, I don't mean the globe. I mean the world system. The fallen system dominated by Satan. Do you see any evidence of that? Their days are numbered. We were talking here before the service this evening of <clears throat> Psalm 110 and the promise of that footstool that is be being prepared for the feet of the Lord Jesus. What is it made from? His enemies. Who is making it? The Father. And God is working even in this generation and this time building a stool for his feet because the time is coming that we will be delivered from this world system and its evil, wretched ways. I left out verse 13. 
When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. That temple disappeared in 70 AD. It's still present here. It was obsolete. No need for it anymore. My wife's birthday was about two weeks ago, and ladies, just eat your hearts out here tonight. I got her for her birthday. You ready? A butter churn. <laughs> Made in the 1900s, founded in an antique store. It's sitting in our living room. Now, we'll ne never make butter with it. Why? Because it's obsolete. It's obsolete. I can remember my father coming home with this bucket with a cylinder in it and a crank on top. And he, I said, what's that, Dad? And he says, it's for homemade ice cream. Oh, I was excited until I had to turn the crank. <laughs> and I asked, why don't we just go down to Goshen Dairy for $1.10? We can buy a whole half gallon of the best ice cream you can get. Why sit there and turn that crank for salty ice cream? It's obsolete. There's no need for it anymore. And the thing that's so neat about a butter churn or an ice cream maker is you can look back and reminisce and be thankful for what you got now. And that's what's so neat about the law. We can look back to the law, and the law is good, and we can see those who functioned under the law, and they were faithful, and they handled the law lawfully, and they looked forward to the promised fulfillment, and we can see the Davids and the Abrams and the Josephs who, who trusted in God in that, in that era. And their hope was fulfilled. And you and I have such a great hope set before us and we can press on trusting in God for what he holds for us. That we live in this New Testament era, something old, something new, in this New Testament era, trusting fully in God. Laying hold of every privilege and opportunity that we have through God's provision for us. Entering in, as the writer of Hebrews says later, into that very holy of holies, into the presence of God and calling upon him and seeing him move and answer our prayers. I don't know if you've been following the news or looking at what's going on in our country and our world, but God is answering prayers. And we need to be people of prayer. And we need to use what we have. And we need to function in this covenant for this golden opportunity as we're alive in this marvelous day. The fields are white for harvest. What did Jesus say? Get out there. No, he said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workmen. Pray. It's our privilege and our opportunity in this great covenant that he has brought us into. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the fulfillment of the promise of the old covenant at Calvary. And now, Lord, as we look back to that cross, that full provision on our behalf, that salvation that is completely finished to your calling in this time, and you have called and commissioned us and put us on the field of life to carry out your purpose. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see the harvest. We pray that you would give us the words and the message to speak and give us the vision to carry us forward. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great sacrifice on our behalf, which is fully sufficient for everything that we need. And we pray in your precious name. Amen.